G'day you mob, Pete here, and this is another episode of Aussie English, the number one place for anyone and everyone wanting to learn Australian English. So, today I have a GOSS episode for you where I sit down with my old man, my father, Ian Smithson, and we talk about the week's news, whether locally down under here in Australia or non-locally <laughs> overseas in other parts of the world, okay? And we sometimes also talk about whatever comes to mind, right? If we can think of something interesting to share with you guys related to us or Australia, we also talk about that in the GOSS. So, these episodes are specifically designed to try and give you content about many different topics where we're obviously speaking in English and there are multiple people having a natural and spontaneous conversation in English. So, it is particularly good to improve your listening skills. In order to complement that though, I really recommend that you join the podcast membership or the academy membership at aussieenglish.com.au where you will get access to the full transcripts of these episodes, the PDFs, the downloads, and you can also use the online PDF reader to read and listen at the same time, okay? So, if you really, really want to improve your listening skills fast, Get the transcript, listen and read at the same time, keep practicing, and that is the quickest way to level up your English. Anyway, I've been rabbiting on a bit, I've been talking a bit. Let's just get into this episode, guys. Smack the bird, and let's get into it. Dad, what's up? What's the go? Hey, Pete. It's raining. Well, not right at the moment, but it's been raining half the day. I know, I just got Noah one of those little cricket sets, plastic ones from the yeah. from Woolies. But um yeah, got home and was like, Yeah, it's pissing down, mm. so it's probably yeah. gonna have to wait. Not not putting this together inside. <laughs> this is an outside yes. toy. <laughs> yeah. Save it for Christmas. <laughs> I know. All right. So in Australia's wet weather, tis the season for spiders, mozzies, mice, and mold. Mm. La Nina brings La Nina. more than just rain to eastern states as some unwanted visitors begin venturing into people's homes. So, this was an interesting article that was, yeah, I guess mainly talking about the fact that we are now in a La Nina, um, what would you say? We are indeed. Event. So, it is what? Characterized by hot and wet kind of weather because we have a lot of moisture brought over. So, I thought- yeah, the the article was more about um, all these spiders and mozzies and termites and rodents. We have a lot more of that, and even mold as a mm. result of these climatic this changes. Is constant damp. Yeah, yeah. And so the animals can get around, move around more more freely. Obviously, mosquitoes are going to be breeding a lot more if there's more water available. And mm-hmm. then things like rodents can eat all of these animals, and uh, mold is going to be growing all over the place because it's just humid all the time. Yes. But we have, yeah, La Nina, El Nino. We talked in the previous episode where we were talking about gardens, I think, about the drought that we had in um, Ocean Grove. Well, at least we were in Ocean Grove when the drought was hitting yes. probably yeah, it the was most southeast, southeast of Australia. Australia. Yeah. yeah, and this was during an El Nino event, right? Yes, it was. And so, these are- I thought I would break this down for you guys because it was interesting and I got to do this in, I think, first year geology and probably year 12 Um I don't know, it would have been biology or something like that. We would have been studying this. But there are these two sort of parts of this cycle, the um, El Nino Southern Oscillation. So, the El Nino is what the- um, it's the drier yes. cold. Is it cold or is it just dry? Dry. Just dry, hot and dry. Yeah. And then the La Nina is the hot and wet. 
it's kind of like the seasons they get in the north of Australia, right? Where it goes mm-hmm. from hot, dry to hot, wet. But yeah, so El Nino and La Nina represent opposite extremes in the El Nino Southern Oscillation, Enzo. The Enzo cycle refers to the coherent and sometimes very strong year to year variations in sea surface temperatures, rainfall, surface air pressure, and atmospheric circulation that occur across the equatorial Pacific Ocean. El Nino refers to the above average sea surface temperatures that periodically develop across the east central equatorial Pacific. It represents the warm phase of the Enzo cycle. La Nina refers to the periodic cooling of sea surface temperatures across the east central equatorial Pacific, and it represents the cold phase of the Enzo cycle, I guess. Yeah, so that's probably why we're in this sort of cold, uh, wet weather this exactly. week, right? Yes. So, yeah, we. I, I guess it's, it's difficult for the meteorologists to work out when we're in these cycles because I think you need a sort of prolonged um, amount of time where you can see that this pattern emerges and then you're kind of like, okay, now we can classify it as we've mm-hmm. entered. The same with a drought or a, well, a flood's a little more conspicuous, a little more obvious, but- um, for Yes, well, drought- floods, floods are, um, are, are flash events. There are things that happen because of you know, a large amount of rainfall in a hurry, yeah. whereas droughts, by definition, are a long period of less rainfall. Um, so they're not exact opposites in a sense. You can actually have a flood in the middle of a drought, yeah, um, because you know the flood happens and then you know then the water's gone a week later. Whereas, and that's usually uh, a big problem, right? Because they you you would think okay they get all this water during a drought that's great, but the problem is that it comes and goes really quickly as opposed to prolonged water. That if you had the exactly. prolonged exposure to the same volume of water, it would be much better than just getting it all at once. Mm. And particularly if it's been dry for a long period of time then there's very little plant life growing on the ground yes. and a big flash flood will wash away a lot of you know, um, surface soil um, and so you end up losing some of the high quality soil for uh, agriculture or just natural growth later on so yeah so this article was interesting where they were talking about this more water equals better conditions for plant growth and then as a result of that you get the insects that rely on the plants mm-hmm. for food and shelter and then as a result of that, you get the other insects and vertebrates and invertebrates that are eating all of them and interacting. Mm-hmm. And so, it's funny how when you just put, at least in this instance, you inject water into a system, into the environment over a prolonged period of time, it has such a cascading effect on the wildlife yes. and and how each- it obviously starts at the bottom- and then all of the uh, things that feed on everything below them, it just gets more and more and more abundant and they, they start to thrive. So, yeah, it is interesting how these all these different animals too are going to affect people differently because you're going to have things like these insects and everything that are in your gardens being a problem. You're probably going to have more sorts of ticks that are going to affect animals uh, like dogs and everything, termites mm. that could get into your houses and then everything up to mosquitoes that are carrying diseases like the Ross River virus that can be a big issue as well. And so, it's so yeah. funny that this is all because of La Nina, effectively, that- um, Yeah, yeah which is exactly. sort of- and, that's, and, and it's really what's happening on the other side of the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. Uh, thousands of kilometres away um, affects all of the atmospheric conditions across 
the whole of the Pacific. Um, so you'd think that, you know, what was happening in Peru and Chile wouldn't be affecting mm -hmm. Australia, but it actually does because it affects the circulation of air around the tropics and the subtropics. And then that changes everything that happens in the you know, east coast of Australia as well. Yeah, we're all connected. Did you grow up with a big understanding of the El Nino, La Nina kind of system? No. Or was that something that sort of developed uh, later on? Really, the first I heard of it, I think, was probably the 1970s, late 1970s. Yeah, we knew about droughts and, you know, cool, wet weather. But yeah. at that stage, I don't think there had been this sort of um, global, atmospheric, oceanic yeah, understanding of what was going on. Um, I think that was really, you know, being looked at in the late 60s, early 70s. And by the time it became sort of, you know, popularly understood, it was the late 70s. Yeah, it is crazy, isn't it? Because I think I remember too that when it's, when we're in this system, I think La Nina is always happening on one side of it, the Pacific, right? And the El Nino is kind of the opposite yeah, side. They so, they, they switch. switch over. Yeah. yeah. And then I think as well, the interesting thing is that the temperature of the water, I guess when it's cooler, La Nina is going to have cooler water and the El Nino has the hotter water. Mm -hmm. I think the um, level of the water actually increases on one side. It must be the El Nino side. Correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, but from memory, I think that the surface of the ocean actually rises up or there's at least a difference, right? Because the water is kind of sloshing backwards <laughs> and forwards between these two different continents. Mm. So, it is crazy how it's, uh, it's happening on such a massive scale. And that we get these opposites happening. So, you know, at the moment, yeah, in places like Chile and Peru and everything, it's going to be a lot drier. And that's yeah. literally the opposite side of the planet, right? Exactly. Yeah. And look, the problem is that they are both positive feedback systems um, in a sense, because what we're in at the moment is yeah, a La Nina, which means that the water temperature is cooling. Um, so, and we're getting you know, cooler air, therefore more rain. Um, and because we've got cooler air, you get less evaporation. So, the water sits around for longer. And then in El Nino, it's the reverse where you get you know, less rain, but also higher temperatures and less cloud cover. And so, you get you know, greater evaporation. So, they're both you know, accelerating positive feedback systems. There's not a balance between them. The only balance is when you get the global shift and they move around. And so, uh, it's one of those things where, um, yeah, until we understood exactly what was going on in that relationship between ocean temperatures and evaporation and air temperature and rainfall and all those things combined, yeah, um, that we started to understand, ah, oh, this is why we have droughts. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's not that yeah, you know, oh, we've just got a you know, it's a bit warmer this year. It's it's warmer and there is no rainfall and they're, they're double effect. Do you know why Australia is so dry? Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, it's probably related to the Southern Ocean, I suspect, in that because South Africa is fairly dry and Southern Chile and Argentina are as well. So, And I think it's because of uh, the Southern Ocean, which means that it's a full circula circulation around the globe, uh, means that the... Water currents and the air, the atmospheric air movement um, is circulating the globe. It's not moving up and down from the tropics to the subtropics. Yeah. So, you don't get a lot of, um, we occasionally get it, but you don't often get 
uh, tropical air, which tends to have a lot more water in it, moving south into Australia, into the Australian continent um, and dumping water on it. Whereas in the northern hemisphere, um, because there's no circumpolar uh, ocean um, and then the land and the water sort of break up that pattern. And so you get a lot more north south movement of um, of uh, atmospheric conditions and yeah, and rainfall and so on. So I think we're sort of stuck in this um, trap between the tropics and Antarctica where there isn't a lot of movement north and south. I think that happened, right? That was when we used to be a continent that was covered in forests. And yeah, when, then, we were, when we were attached to Antarctica. Yeah, and then we, as we split from Antarctica, the desert started to develop and this was- or they would have developed after that, but- the, yes. the more that gap grew between Antarctica and Australia, then the deserts, I think, are only about 20 million years old from memory when mm. I was studying, um, you know, phylogenetics. And, and a lot of these organisms that had adapted to live in the deserts, they only show up within the last 20 or so million years. And Australia has been, you know, separated from South America for, I think, 80 or 90 million years, you know, drifting with Antarctica. Antarctica, and Antarctica for about- up. 30 million, yeah. Yeah, and so it's interesting how quickly, I mean, geologically speaking, those changes have occurred and most of Australia's dried up, turned into desert and we've evolved this insane, in you know, a massive amount of fauna that live in the desert and are adapted to the desert. Mm. But then as well, we get all of the moisture and the rain on the East Coast because we have the Great Dividing Range that, that goes pretty much from Tasmania all the way up to, you know, Cape York. To, yeah, exactly. And so. you get the- air being pushed up from the ocean right above the mountains and then it precipitating so, yeah, and raining. all the rain falls on the coast yeah yeah so australia is a pretty unique place it's um it's going to be crazy i think too it's it's heading north and it's going to crash into effectively indonesia mm. in the next tens of millions of years obviously. well it already has that's the you look at um the mountain range that runs east west in new guinea is a result of that Australasian plate just, you know, moving northwards yeah. and crashing into that um, Indo-Pacific plates yeah, at that point. It's going to be so funny when all of, you know, the- I would love to know more about what happens when you have these two continents collide with the species interchange that takes place, right? Because mm. you're going to suddenly have all of these things. Like, assuming humans weren't here, you would have- and, and assuming that we don't completely- just destroy fauna in both Australia and <laughs> Southeast Asia, you would have suddenly these two continents with very different fauna um, smashed into one another where you would have tigers that could potentially come into Australia or bears yes. and monkeys and vice versa. You would have kangaroos entering parts of Southeast Asia, you know, and, and other marsupials, echidnas mm. and that sort of stuff. And you're like, what happens when that when these two- you have two meetings like that where you have the fauna suddenly able to, you know, interact. Do you have a lot of extinction that suddenly takes place or do they just sort of reach an equilibrium where a tiger works out how to eat an echidna or to just stay away from it? You know, yeah. it- well, that's effectively what's happened over the last few million years um, on what we call, you know, as, as um, yeah, phylogeographic biologists, what is called Wallace's line, yeah, uh, which is just an artificial construct. It's a human construct. It has no geographical significance. Um, it, it could be 
a long way further west or a long way further east. It just happens to be sitting where it is at the moment in well, the middle of Indonesia. The line is just based on where the fauna differs dramatically yeah, on either exactly, side. Yeah, exactly. But there's no reason why the Balinese tiger was the one that was further east. There could have been tigers in Australia. They just haven't got here yet. Yeah. Um, and they've been you know, going extinct over that period of time. Kangaroos could have got into Malaysia. They just haven't got there yet. Yeah. And... So it's that, uh, you know, we've got this artificial line for as humans over a period of 150 years uh, as a, and think that's the way it's always been, but it hasn't been and it won't be in the future. Um, things will change. Uh, we've got, uh, I mean, you know, you're a, um, a rodent biologist and, uh, you know, all of our rodents just arrived from Indonesia uh, and... That happened over a fairly rapid period of time um, in comparison with you know, a whole lot of other things that, you know, like marsupials that evolved here over tens of millions of years. Um, and that occurred in a, a series of, you know, potentially of, of migration events. But in geological time, that was just the skin on the apple. It was, yeah, uh, it was a very, recent. very recent um, occurrence. Well, they only got here within the last five to seven million years. I think probably yeah. f on the five on the conservative side of it, and they came over in multiple waves. And mm. crazily enough, though, have diversified and filled up all of the environments in Australia in the blink of an eye. Where we now have you know seventy species of rodents in Australia, and they live pretty much everywhere. Yeah. Well, they were just better competitors than the uh, their ecological equivalent marsupials. Well, so. and they could breed like rats so that they yeah. were able to <laughs> adapt well, that's, rapidly. That's part of that, that competition yeah. is, yeah. So, Yeah, it is crazy. I always would love to know more as an evolutionary biologist about what life's going to do in the future. You know, these kinds of things that would impact organisms and environments and how that's going to change, you know, how when you have continental shift or environments that change what happens to the the different the different um ecosystems and how they adapt to it with extinction with new species everything like that it would be crazy to see what if and when marsupials would escape australia and get into the rest mm. of the world because you would imagine if when the continent smashes into uh indonesia and there's no more of a huge sea barrier between the two that marsupials will escape um, Australia and get into Southeast Asia, which is then connected to effectively the rest of, of Asia and Europe, and then effectively can get into the Americas, you know. So, it'd be interesting to see if they would be um, a very competitive and, and uh, well-equipped group to survive, or mm. if they would just be out-competed by all the other um Eutherian mammals and everything. Well, not just out-competed, but we have you know, almost no predators for you know, large yeah. marsupials yeah. in Australia anymore, um, whereas there are plenty of large predators uh, in what is you know, euphemistically known as the old world, mm -hmm. um, you know, Europe and Asia, that you know, these animals would have to go through to get to anywhere else. So. But again, that would be really interesting to see too, right? If you suddenly introduce a shitload of predators to interact with Australian marsupials, what does mm. that do in terms of pushing their adaptation and evolution? Because you're gonna you're gonna have this selective pressure all of a sudden on on herbivores, say like kangaroos. Is it gonna force them to get a lot larger or a lot quicker? How are they gonna adapt? Because you would imagine mm. they're not gonna necessarily be wiped out suddenly because they encounter a tiger or a wolf. 
Yeah, um, exactly. But that, there's uh, going to be pressure on them to change and adapt in order to get around, you know, dealing with that. That would be such a weird thing to see, a tiger taking down a kangaroo. You'd just be like- Yeah, well, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be at? tigers so much. It'd be lions and cheetahs that would be living out in the same areas. There, there are- forest kangaroos where mm -hmm. you know tigers would be the one but they the, that sort of classic african savanna uh you know with lions and cheetahs running down antelope and wildebeest and antelope and wildebeest are the african equivalent of kangaroos yeah. so you know you go out and you see you know a whole you know mob of you know eastern gray or western gray kangaroos sitting out in the uh, out in the grassy plains um you know Seeing large predators chasing them would be um, a really interesting thing to imagine what effect that's going to have, as you suggest. So. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we can finish up there and uh, see you guys next time. I think in the next episode or two, we're going to be talking about the uh, mythic white sperm whale that was the recently white sperm caught. whale. Moby Dick was I found know. in Jamaica. Yeah. How crazy is that? So, yeah, yeah, stick around for that. See you guys. Yeah. All righty, you mob. Thank you so much for listening to or watching this episode of The Goss. If you would like to watch the video, if you're currently listening to it and not watching it, you can do so on the Aussie English channel on YouTube. You'll be able to subscribe to that. Just search Aussie English on YouTube. And if you're watching this and not listening to it, you can check this episode out also on the Aussie English podcast, which you can find via my free Aussie English podcast application on both Android and iPhone. You can download that for free or you can find it via any other good podcast uh, app that you've got on your phone, Spotify, podcast from iTunes, Stitcher, whatever it is. I'm your host, Pete. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you have a ripper of a day and I will see you next time. Peace.